the liberal elite who rule us have destroyed the law. It's no longer about justice, it's about power. question is very simple, who judges the judges? Uh, politically, they may win on this yet, because we all hate embarrassment of any sort. And as we think our way through this, I'm not sure we have the moral fortitude that's required. It's always been of interest to me that one of the major subgroups, if you want to do this on identity politics line, abortion on demand, are actually men who go to church on Sunday. A very high proportion of them will be pro-choice in practice. They don't want to be embarrassed by their daughter in church. That's what it's about. We've got to become a lot more honest about what's involved if we're going to deal with this. Good Wednesday morning. Hopefully you guys just got a taste of what you're going to hear in today's podcast. This is going to be kind of a continuation of last week's podcast. If you didn't listen to that, be sure to go back and do that. With that being said, now we're going to jump in and John is going to get into today's talk. I want to talk about what's going to happen to your medical services. I grew up in a time in Britain before the National Health Service began, where getting sick was very frightening to working class people because they lived from pay packet to pay packet. But it didn't matter that much because... Uh, we were reasonably healthy by and large, but charity worked to some degree. And then the NHS came in and initially it was wonderful. And I want to put that up front. But where we've got to now is a problematic state. Basically, uh, the liberal elite who rule us have destroyed the law, uh, one of the major professions, and turned it into uh, a power grab. It's no longer about justice, it's about power left way back in 1979, made that very clear, and everything since has only made his predictions even more amazing. The law, he said, is no longer the pursuit of justice, but the pursuit of power. And of course, that was taken uh, indirectly from the dissenting judge in the Roe v. Wade decision. I've got a grandson in law school at the moment, and he says, well, it's all about procedure, that's all. Now, my grandson is currently struggling with faith, but he's intelligent and he understands that they couldn't possibly dis discuss where justice comes from because they have nothing to say. Because the question is very simple. Who judges the judges? If there is no authority above us, then there is no authority other than power. And human history shows that again and again and again. So what about medicine? Medicine has really been hammered uh, by the maladministration of the COVID episode. And it, it's a good illustration of what I want you to get under your belt and in your head, so to speak. What happened is otherwise well-intentioned people, let's not judge them any, any more than that at this point, thought that they could handle this disease as though there were no people involved, no real flesh and blood human beings. And their own pride had a, a large part to play in it. And once those attitudes get underway, it was inevitable what was going to happen. What I had not seen coming, what nobody saw coming on the scale that it came, was that you would counsel and set about manipulating via everything from Twitter to the government and what else to stop people who disagreed with what you were doing from speaking. That is not acceptable in the Western world. That's totalitarian behavior. Uh, 
you are telling them what to think. Now, you happen to be talking about a virus that's going to go away and prove that you were wrong anyway very quickly or at least become another manageable disease. But what if you took that attitude to some other things? And there are certainly people out there who would like to. And that will mean very shortly you won't have a doctor who says, well, I have some doubts about whether cutting off the genitals of a child who's never had an organism is a good idea. If you said that in an interview at medical school, probably stop you getting in now. That's unbelievable. That's a perfectly valid position to hold, even if it, I've expressed it very bluntly, but that's what's happening if you go the full direction. You're not creating the opposite sex. You're create, creating a eunuch. Uh, they will never have children by any normal means. That's where we've got to. It's not the only thing. They are furious about the way the Roe v. Wade decision was reversed and abortion was pushed back to the the level of the state. But uh, politically, they may win on this yet because we all hate embarrassment of any sort. And as we think our way through this, uh, I'm not I'm not sure we have the moral fortitude that's required. It's always been of interest to me that one of the major subgroups, if you want to do this on identity politics lines, one of the major subgroups who support uh, abortion on demand are actually men who go to church on Sunday. A very high proportion of them will be pro-choice in practice. They don't want to be embarrassed by their daughter in church. That's what it's about. We've got to become a lot more honest about what's involved if we're going to deal with this. So we've been eroded in in various ways, but we do have a long history. The first thing to recognize about the history of medicine, I think anyway, is that until the 1860s, it was not actually in your interest to go and see a doctor if you were sick, if the outcome that concerned you was living. The ones who went to the doctor were more likely to die than the ones who didn't. So why did people go to doctors over all these years? Well, they went to find out what was wrong with themselves. When you know you're not, something's the matter, something's wrong, you have to go and find out what it is. And then you have the the doctor has the amazing experience every now and again of having to give you bad news, and the patient says, thank you because now they know what they've got to do. And we don't live with uncertainty well, and we do have certain deep requirements to be good to the people around us. And one of the ways we're good to the people around us is dying well. And so if, you, if you're told, look, don't start any major investments because you're not going to be around in a year's time, uh, they say thank you. But we're going to get to a stage where We won't even be doing that in the way we do now unless we sit up and take notice, reassess, and start pushing back. So what happened in, of course, the 1860s was that was when uh, Lord Lister first covered the the wound of a compound fracture with antiseptic, and for the first time, a patient survived a compound fracture because normally they died of septicemia. about the same time Pasteur came along, they interacted with one another, uh, intellectually at least, and our world changed. And every, everything that we call modern medicine 
uh, apart from the bizarre clinical recognition of smallpox inoculation by a family practitioner in the country, uh, which was the first immunization uh, that was done by a doctor. And he was picking up from what people in the Middle East had learned at the end of a smallpox epidemic. If your kid hasn't had it when it's dying out, expose them right at the end as it's dying away. They'll survive and then they don't get smallpox later. And what uh, Tom Sowell calls um, Monday knowledge uh, that the community had was actually doing immunization that way, uh, way back. But what uh, Jenna did was to turn it into a process that was medically acceptable and was the first successful vaccination program and a very safe one, unlike uh, uh, the copied one. Well, uh, when you're facing a, a disease as dangerous as uh, smallpox and as infectious as smallpox, you have lower standards for how much collateral damage you're willing to accept and what the public is willing to accept. So uh, what happened was that science came into medicine and then scientism took over. Now, what's the difference? Science, as far as I'm concerned, as a practicing scientist, was experimental science. And the only cultures that ever did experimental science were Jews and Christians, and mainly Christians. Uh, the Jews had lost their way for a bit in that time of their history, but they've come back big time to dominate now in a very good way. So what they had that no other culture had, and what was given to them around the 13th century was a problem. Uh, Aristotle had been brought back into Western thought by Thomas Aquinas, and deductive logic landed in the newly established 12th century universities within 100 years of their start, and they loved it because now they had a way of teaching with power that they didn't have before. But Christians always worry about academics, especially humble Christians, and rightly so, because academics do a lot of damage and some good. And the Bishop of Paris was worried that this new deductive logic might undermine the church, which ultimately did in many ways. He was right at one level. And so he banned the teaching of Aristotelian deductive logic in the University of Paris in 1277, Aristotelian Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. Um, of course, the universities were owned and run by the church, so the people in Paris had to obey. Oxford didn't, and they carried on. But my, this is pure artistic license on my part, but I, I think they sat down and said, what on earth are we going to do? It's August, so we've got to teach in September, and we can't use last, year, last year's notes. Not a happy state of affairs to be in. I think they probably went out and got drunk, but when they'd sobered up, uh, they said, well, maybe we could do inductive logic. Now, the modern society doesn't like you to call it inductive reasoning, but experimental science is inductive reasoning. Now, the difference between induction and deduction is deduction starts from the big end of the spectrum, God, if you like, and tries to reason down all the way to everyday life. We get lost on the way every time. It's too big a stretch for us to accomplish intellectually completely. Inductive logic is quite different. Inductive logic looks at something you can, you think, understand or measure and asks the question, hmm, what does that imply? And you start working the other way from the particular up 
as far as you can until you ultimately, if you're very successful, you generalize in a major theory like Newtonian physics or Einsteinian physics. Um, of course, it worked. It didn't work that quickly. It took a little while, a few centuries. The first, the first graph was drawn about less than 100 years after the Parisian ban, which didn't work, but nevertheless set this new process going, and that happened in Oxford at Merton College. They didn't know they'd drawn a graph, but they had. Aristotle had never drawn a graph, so he never got he got to time to make a journey and distance travelled in a certain time, but never got to the ratio, miles per hour. Now, they got to under, drawing the graph, which had intrinsically in it that idea, but it took a while for that to get sorted out. And they were good at uh, their job. I mean, once you get the some basic premises going, uh, the guys in Oxford are a wonderful group of Christian guys, and amazingly, most Christians don't even know their names. You know. Some of them are memorable, like Swineshead and uh, Brad, oh gosh, I'm having problems now, Gross Tester. Uh, but uh, about five of them, and those names will come back in just after I finish this talk. Uh, but watching them, another Franciscan in Oxford was a man called William of Ockham, who was very smart. And he realized that this inductive science was going to be successful and it might undermine the faith. So he did something which a very smart man shouldn't have done, I think. Uh, he tried to help God out by separating off the things that could not be measured from the things that could. The immaterial from the material. That left God with justice, honor, mercy, love, all those things, and left us with a ruler and a graph and all that came from that. Uh, it went next to Paris, the next stage where important people took over, which was Nicola Resume and uh, uh, Buridan, uh, and they moved on the next step. Nicola Resume was a very smart, sophisticated uh, bishop who actually proposed before Copernicus that for as a calculating device, it is easier to do astronomy assuming that the sun is the center of our cosmos and not the earth, but it's just a calculating device. Very smart. He, he never, as far as I know, he never said, I think it's the truth. He, he knew that was too big a leap. Copernicus did think it was the truth, and he was banned, although nothing happened to him. He got his copy of uh, the book in his hands on his deathbed, So, and it was written in such a way that only about a dozen people in Europe could understand it. But ultimately, it led to the next step through uh, Galileo and and uh, Kepler on on to Newton. And everybody knows that story. Uh, the way it became so practical was Galileo was always looking to make a buck because he was always short of it. And he, he wanted to help gunners. Uh, so he started thinking about Aristotelian physics and realized it had got to be wrong. And he started measuring what happened when you rolled a ball down an inclined plane and let it take off into space. Aristotle said it would go along like that and then drop when it ran out of the power to go forward. And, of course, what Galileo discovered was that it was a curve. Um, that was a, a major step forward. Ultimately, that put a man on the moon. That was the start of modern physics. Uh, 
astonishing. He got into trouble with the church because he had he was a very brash man and he insulted a man who thought he was very clever. Not he thought himself to be very clever, not Galileo, and he was a physicist too, and part of the Catholic Church. And he watched Galileo, waited for him to make a mistake, and then he took his revenge, and he triggered the uh, Inquisition, uh, which nobody could stop, not even the Pope. Uh, I mean, he never got to... Uh, tortured or anything like that. He was shown the torturing iron, as it said, but he was never tortured. And he, his torture at the end of his life when he couldn't walk very far because he had a huge hernia was to stay on his farm on the outskirts of uh, Florence and his daughter could read the penitential prayers for him every day or whatever the schedule was. Um, most of us would queue up for that, wouldn't we? Especially you in the snow in Idaho today. Um, Florence might look better. Spring in Florence, lovely. Uh, but of course, uh, most students will believe that that uh, uh, Galileo was tortured by the church. Probably, or some of them probably think he was killed by the church. It wasn't. That wasn't the way it was. But what happened at that time was intellectual, not the science that mattered. And what Bacon, who was not a scientist, said, uh, "It's Francis Bacon, not Roger Bacon." Uh, he said, collect facts, and he changed the meaning of the word fact. It used to be used to describe moral facts. The Ten Commandments were facts. Now they're not. Facts are now things that you can measure. So what happens to justice and love and mercy and honor if that is truly the case? Well, how can you say truly even? It's incoherent, but nevertheless it took off, and that's what scientism is when you believe, as we saw in COVID. The science tells us what to do. Well, the science didn't because it wasn't science. And science will never tell you what to do. You're, the moment you get to an ought, you've left science. And when we didn't get to an ought, we, we got to a command. Thou shalt not come within two meters of any other human being if it's feasible at all not to, breaking down all social relationships to a considerable degree, that children shall not see the lips of a teacher for two years. What's that going to happen to do to their education? Half the face covered. Um, this, is, this was insanity. There was no humanity involved in the process. It got lost. It wasn't that the people were not humane. They were on a crusade and they thought they could do more than they could. And then in addition, we, we're using a new, new process for making vaccines, which I certainly missed. But there are people out there who got hammered, who actually invented the mRNA approach. I've forgotten his name again at the moment, but he's got quite a few YouTube videos and they're worth watching, as is Jay Bhattacharya from the Hoover Institute. Listen to those two and you'll get the whole story in a little while. And it needs to be told uh, so that we could back off. So medicine is not just about the facts of the, your disease. When That's what a, a rather brash resident means when he says to a junior doctor, just tell me the facts. He, he doesn't want to hear anything about Mrs. Smith. He just wants to know the disease. That's scientism. 
because that disease and Mrs. Smith have to be held together. And he doesn't know that, and he might never learn how to this. I remember being stopped in my tracks when I was, I think, just a junior doctor. Yeah, it must have been about then, yeah. And I didn't have that kind of senior resident. I had a very good guy who realized I was an arrogant little uh, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and uh, I talked about a patient, and he said, the bedside is no place for intellectual pride. And I knew he was right, and I've forgotten his name, but I thank him nevertheless. Uh, he, he changed the direction of my life in a very significant way. Uh, life has got to be looked at as a whole, and the patient is, needs that kind of doctor, especially for the crises of life. The best nice account of it is in a few lines from uh, Orden, W.H. Orden. He goes like this, Give me a doctor partridge plump, short in the leg and broad in the rump, an endomorphic gentle hands who will not make absurd demands that I abandon all my vices, nor pull long faces in a crisis, but with a twinkle in his eye will tell me that I have to die. Borden, wonderful poet, uh, he had his... Uh, misbehaviors and all the rest, but he believed the basic story of Christianity was true. And he needed the twinkle in the eye for the process of death. He didn't want every last minute to be grabbed at this absolutely unacceptable price. People should not go out of life having their chest thumped as a routine. It's not a good departure procedure. These, so now they, they realize this is, this is not a good way to go. So what are they replacing it with? They're replacing it with MAID, medical assistance in dying. It used to be MAD, uh, medical assistance, uh, medical assisted death, and then they realized that was not a very good acronym, so they changed it to MAID. Um, and people now are being killed before they're going to die, sometimes by quite long periods. They're now allowing MAID for chronic mental disease. They're allowing it in children. Uh, Canada is now the woeful state of being having the highest rate of killing patients in the world having passed Belgium and Holland which have been uh, sitting in that place for a long while this is not good news uh, because if you collaborate in the early death of someone you say you love and later you realize what you've done you're going to have psychological problems and the like for a long while. Uh, it's very clear that when you kill your baby before it's born, you have increased your risk of having serious depression later in life. There's no point in denying that. It's true, fortunately for us. The guy who worked that out, Ferguson in New Zealand, was he's not a Christian. He was just a psychiatrist who said, it's, it's not honest to pretend that this isn't a major factor. So what did medicine have in all those years before it had any practical means of treating disease? Well, it had four commitments. It understood because once doctors have power, they couldn't treat disease, but they could certainly kill you. And they did in the past. And they're doing it again now. The witch doctor in Africa can actually cure a few things uh, with herbs, but he's a very good toxicologist. 
I'm told that 40 people died after having dinner with Mobutu, uh, who had his own personal witch doctor. And if he didn't like you, you uh, died painfully. If he just wanted you out of the way, you died peacefully. But you didn't know there was some white powder on the, on the plate, so to speak, that could kill you. But it could. So in the ancient world, patients were killed. Money changes hands. Corruption is inevitable. If you give doctors the right to kill, corruption is absolutely inevitable. Because bribery will take place. There are itching hands in the next generation who can't wait to get a hold of grandfather's money. And the level of trust, the level of commitment to the commission to the profession is dropping. When I started medical school, we didn't even have any lectures in ethics. Uh, ethics were caught rather than taught. You saw the way you behaved. Now, I only saw one physician in my time, but I knew it happened, who actually accelerated the deaths of p patients that he couldn't, he just couldn't watch them any longer. That's, a, that's wrong. It's not his job to do that, but uh, it's that at one level is understandable. And in a plural society, we're going to have to deal with it, but we should deal with it honestly. Uh, no ethics lectures, but we were taught how to behave. And you were taught that the patient came first. There wasn't any question if you were called. You went immediately. And that's why kids who grow up in medical homes got into medical school more often because at least they knew what they were letting themselves in for. Uh, I mean, we always in the past did that. If the family had some, what Thomas Sowell would call Monday knowledge about what was involved, real knowledge though, um, your sons and daughters followed the family pattern. They, we, it's even in our names, the baker. Why do you think people are called baker? Because the whole family were making bread for centuries. And so he goes on. Um, because there's all sorts of knowledge, as I said last week, that that we can't account for. We can't even express it at some levels. And even Hayek, uh, uh, um, Maggie Thatcher's and, and Ronald Reagan's favorite economist in one of his not-so-famous books, the one he's still not read, but the one that got to Thatcher and Reagan was The Road to Serfdom. But he said, look, there's lots of important knowledge that people have that they can't even express, but it's there. Uh, it comes from their upbringing. They've taken it in with mother's milk and everything that came afterwards. And so that that's important. So the doctors of the past, Hippocrates et al., they wanted to get, they realized the only thing they really had was trust, so they needed to make it greater. And they realized that saying they would not kill was a good idea. So the four things they cared about was, do you believe you'll be judged after death? Do you understand that medicine is a moral activity, helping people to do what they ought? Do you understand that the reason for being totally pro-life is because to be otherwise is to undermine trust, which is critical? And finally, um, they demanded that the patient give them in return uh, conscience rights. Obama made no provision for conscience rights in Obama, Obamacare. You were just like anybody else with a job. You'd signed up for it. You did what they expected. That's not what the profession was. So, you are now facing a situation in which disease in the reductive sense, like this bacteria causing this disease treated by this antibiotic, those things work very well. 
and we'll get better at treating hypertension and diabetes and straightforward traditional medicine. But the vast majority of patients in the Western world now have other sorts of diseases. Anxiety has been vastly increased by COVID, especially in the young. So as I, I travel around talking to students and the like, both the parents and the children who are thinking about university action are extremely anxious about the future. The kids don't have a great deal of hope. So we're going to have to change the way we approach teaching students in Augustine College too, because we have to start where they're at. Uh, where they're at is not a good space. Talk to the people who've got kids in university. Talk to the children who are in high school. They, they don't have hope for the future. Greta has really got to them. They don't think there's going to be a future. They're so ridiculous. So what do we do in the church? Well, that's where medicine started. It started in an in institutional way within a century of Christ that people started picking up people from the street who'd been abandoned and caring for them. And then the, the monasteries took this over. So there were thousands of monasteries across Europe that took people in when they were sick. They gave them some herbal re remedies, but most of all, they cared for them as they died. Um, we've, we've forgotten all that history. You go to your doctor now and you're not sure in hospital whether you'll ever see the same doctor twice. That's not progress. That's recognition of the realities of life, but in a way that's not all that helpful. The, the huge leap forward that was supposed to be uh, a computer-dominated uh, medicine has not turned out to be so great. It's basically about bureaucrats wanting to control you and having means to do so because you get punished for doing good medicine now. Uh, if you spend more time with a patient because you understand that they are psychologically at the right moment to really discuss taking charge of their diabetes instead of simply checking their blood sugar and their blood pressure every month or whatever the frequency is, depending on the state of the disease, and then increasing the insulin, which increases the body weight, which increases the hypertension. So it's a vicious cycle. And it can only be stopped by some really serious interaction between the doctor and the patient. And that takes time. But you do that and you get punished for being less productive from the bureaucrat's point of view. The bureaucrats don't even realize that the only things that interest in them are the things that can be measured, but the things that can be measured are not the only things that are there. They're certainly not going to stop all the psychological nastinesses with that approach. So, what can we do? Here's my little starting list. I hope we'll get some feedback because I, I want people to think seriously about this. The church is the only place I can see where there is hope of preserving this in the future. I know one or two physicians who have gone for cash only uh, and based their practice around their church uh, and the people who join their practice pay a very small retainer to help them have some cash flow but what they do for them say if, you, if your kid falls off the swing and is bleeding just put a towel on it and I'll come around and put some stitches in there you don't have to wait three hours in yeah, the ER OR ER um, and so on 
you have a family doctor who knows you and your family, and like they used to say, oh, I remember delivering you. You were a little blighter even coming out of the womb, you know. Uh, that kind of doctor is not available anymore, but it, the church can bring it back. And the church that does that will get a lot more than that because that doctor is going to say, look, I need every year to talk to the young people about sex and sexuality and sexually transmitted disease. It's not a pleasant thing they need to learn, but they shouldn't learn it from people who are basically out there to justify their own way of life. I want to tell them the real facts. That should happen every year. Uh, parents could be there if they wanted to. Uh, what you shouldn't be allowing is for school teachers to do it, who know nothing about what they're talking about and certainly know nothing of the psychological consequences. Dying is no longer safe. Going to hospital is no longer safe. So you need to provide some services from the church. You need, for instance, to have some sort of service so that the elderly who are getting a little slower don't go to, to, the medic to interact with the medical system alone on any occasion. And they take the person they choose with them into the interview in order to make sure uh, that everything that's said is understood. Uh, they will love you for that. It also means they won't have to drive. That will lead to the next thing that I think you need. We need power of attorney programs in uh, in the church so that you don't write a living will, which then may put your nearest and dearest in a conflict of interest situation. And at the end of life, the person who insists on more treatment is the child who hasn't seen their parents forever. They're dealing with their own guilt. And end of life can be dominated by the guilt of those who live badly rather than by the care of those who loved well. So what you want is to give the decisions to the, a power of attorney committee in the church, which uh, it doesn't need to be very many, a, a doctor, a lawyer, someone like my wife who won't take no for an answer, not intimidated by uh, the hospital or anywhere else uh, related to medicine. So they can go in when you end up in the intensive care units and, and say to the ICU people, look, this patient is at peace with God. You've told me you don't think the probability of success is great. It's much better and nicer for everyone to die at home than in hospital. At the very least, they shouldn't have a tube in every orifice for the last few hours of their lives. Let's get him or her out of the ICU into a single room and see if we can get them home even. They won't mind dying sooner in their own bed with their family around them. That's what they want. Now, the, the, the docs and people in and the hospital administration, half of what's done in an ICU is done to keep the lawyers at bay. It's not for the patient's benefit, it's to protect the doctor from rapacious lawyers and litigators. So that's the next thing that can happen. Now, you can go on down this list because once you start ferrying people to hospital and the like, you, see, you realize they really appreciate this service. Now, just think of this question. How many cars are attached to your church, so to speak, that are no longer enjoyable? They're driven only under a situation of sheer necessity to get to church, for instance. What would happen if you traded those uh, cars in and brought a small two or three vehicles. And then you took the unemployed young 
and said, okay, you can go and fetch Mrs. Smith and take her to church. And Mrs. Smith is going to start talking to Jimmy. He was not being very serious and say, how are you doing in school? I don't like school. Yeah, but you know what will happen if you don't get something. You build the relationships which are at a real level. And once you start thinking this way, you can see dozens of ways in which the church can once again become the center of the community. And in America, it was. The reason America survived is that fortune and flourished to a considerable degree was that the only institution in small towns that could hold people together was church. The government couldn't reach out in the days where you didn't have any electronic communications. You didn't even have decent roads, you know, and the railway hadn't been built or was just being built, in which case you dropped off at certain spots. But as, uh, who was it who said it, uh, de Tocqueville, not till he went into the churches of America did he understand why America was working and why its revolution hadn't been a bloody mess like the French one. Uh, Chesterton later described America as a country with the soul of a church. And it was a, a Protestant church. Uh, the Catholics didn't have any great role in this. And that meant that hierarchy was very limited. So the self-help approach of small communities in, in America has a history. And you are incredible the way that, uh, that you read even now in Europe, something goes wrong, they wait for the police to arrive. That's not what you do in America, is it? You, you, something happens and everybody starts helping. They don't have to be called. At its best, you are a helpful society. It has a history. And the church has been vital to that. Now, we've allowed ourselves to be pushed into a corner. It's time to push back. Um, the next thing to say in this process is that we are much healthier than people who don't believe. Uh, the, you can chase figures in various places, but if you have a family that goes to church regularly, your lifetime health care costs are a fraction of what the general public is, something like a quarter. Why? Because you're in a community. So if you do start drinking too much, somebody who's been down that path will, will realise that something's happening and say, look, can we have coffee together? I've been watching you and I've been down that road. I need to talk to you about it. And you'll get help at the right time. You get help in other ways in terms of... Uh, the way you, you share your family in terms of childcare and the like. Uh, kindergarten uh, run by people who are woke doesn't compare with a playgroup in church. You can uh, Once you start thinking along these lines, you can see so many ways in which uh, we could be providing services which help us to perform better. So... Uh, I hope I planted enough seeds, at least, for people to start thinking about how do we stop turning medicine into merely technique, where if you get a label, you get what the label says you should get, without you as a person being understood at all. And where, at the other end of life, various lives are being described as not having sufficient quality. They have, a, they have a measurement called Qualies, a, a terrible idea. Uh, 
If you don't have enough qualies, you can have made, but you can't have antibiotics. That's where we're going to get to. And we need to say no. So, having ruined your day, folks, I hope you still come back next week. Well, thank you, John, and thank you guys all for listening. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast, and we would love to hear your thoughts. You can feel free to click the links in the description below, reach out to us, share your thoughts. What are you, what are you thinking? With that being said, we appreciate you guys. We'll see you all next week on Wednesday. Thank you.